All right. Thank you, Tom. Good, good afternoon. My name is Chad Mary. I'm on staff here, and I'll be filling in while Mark is on break. Uh, and we're going to be continuing in the book of Isaiah. Um, I know I said Isaiah. I've, I've been trying to say Isaiah, but that, I've, I've been stumbling over that this week. So bear with me. You can, you can translate um, through the book of Isaiah. And we come to chapter 11, and it, we have this amazing picture of hope that's given to us. So before we jump into this text, let me pray for us, and then we'll look at this together. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. It is living and active. God, you have something that you want to communicate to us this afternoon from your word. God, I pray that you would open our ears, open our eyes to see what you have done and what you will do in the hope that we have in Christ. pray this in his name. Amen. Well, what is it that you are hoping in? Or what are you looking to for hope? What happens when your life isn't going according to your plan? So maybe you were applying for universities and you didn't get into the one you wanted. Or maybe you're in university and applying for jobs and it's become a lot harder than you thought it would be and you, you just can't find that job that you've been wanting. Or maybe you're in, in the workplace and that perfect job that you thought you had hasn't turned out to be all that perfect. Or with all the economic downturn that we're exper- experiencing right now, maybe there's rumblings around your office of layoffs and people that will have to let go. You know, there's so many different experiences that each of us are going through that we look to different things for hope. Maybe it's a leader. You're looking that, is there a leader out there that can come and fix things, right? As we look and observe the world around us. So what is it that you are looking to for hope? You know, a lot of us, it might be health. When things are going well, when I'm healthy, when I feel fit, life is good. But what happens when you get sick? Or God forbid you go to the doctor and for a checkup and they discover a lump, right? So what do we do then? Where is our hope? Is there a place that we can place, place that we can put our hope that's rock solid? Well, today's passage in chapter 11 from the book of Isaiah, we're going to see that we have hope first in the nature and reign of the king. That's point one that we'll look at. And then secondly, we're going to look at we have hope in the results of his reign. What does his reign bring about? And then lastly, we're going to look at the hope that we have should lead us to praise. That's chapter 12. So let's look at this together. Last week, Mark spoke from chapter 6. And if you remember chapter 6, it is when Isaiah sees the Lord seated on his throne in all of his glory, all of his holiness. He's moved then to inward reflection, right? Woe is me. He's trembling before the Lord. And the Lord brings the coal, or actually the seraphim, brings the coal, makes atonement for his sin. And then he's given this task to go and proclaim this good news, this good news of God's grace to his people. But he's going to a people who won't listen. Their ears will be not hearing. Their eyes will not be seeing. So it seems like this impossible task. And at the very end, we get this little glimmer of hope that connects to our passage today. So at the very end of chapter 6, it says this. It says... But as the terebinth and the oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So we get this idea that this holy seed will be the stump in the land. What is the stump language, right? It connects to where we're at today. 
Verse 1, chapter 11, it says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. Now just to get our bearings in context here, chapter 10, at the very end of chapter 10, God has brought his judgment upon the Assyrians. So the Assyrian nation, their army, in all their arrogance, they had come through and they had destroyed and taken captive uh, many different cities, including Israel. And now God is coming to bring judgment upon them. And so the end of chapter 10 plays more into this image and that he's going to cut them down. And you get this picture of this field of stumps. You know, there's no birds singing because there are no trees to, for them to sing in. It's just this barren wasteland of stumps. And then we come to verse 1. It says, Out of this, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And so what we get with this language, this, this idea of this sprout, this life coming from this wasteland, is that of the coming Messiah. Well, how do we know that? Well, it says it's the stump of Jesse. We need to know who Jesse is. Who was Jesse? Jesse was David's father. And so David, that's King David from the Bible. And what's important about King David is he was a man after God's own heart. And he was actually the one that God gave the promise that from his line, from his lineage, would come the Messiah. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it says, Someone from your household will be on the throne forever. So we get this idea that the Messiah, Jesus, will come from the line of David. He is going to be the shoot that comes out of Jesse. Well, what is this king, this Messiah, going to be like? That's verses 2 and 3. Look with me there at 2 and 3. It says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. So first we see that he's going to be unlike any other king that we've ever seen. He isn't going to rule out of his own abilities, but he has actually the Spirit of God resting on him. He's fully endowed with the Spirit of God. It sets him apart. We see that he's perfect in mind in verse 2. It says that he has a spirit of wisdom and understanding. He knows all things. He understands all things. He's perfectly wise and perfectly understanding. That's who he is. I think this is crucial because what we're going to see is that he also has power. And if he doesn't have the understanding and wisdom, but yet he has power, that's a dangerous combination. <laughs> but he is the one, the picture we get here is the king who is completely fit to rule. So we see that he's perfect in mind. We also see next that he's perfect in action. That he has the spirit of counsel and of might. That he can act. He isn't just wise in understanding alone, but he has the ability and power to act on that. He always acts correctly. And then we see that his, he is perfect in heart. That's the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. He has the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. So the thing that brings him the most joy is to tremble at the holiness of the Lord. To judge justly because he is in such reverence and awe of God Almighty. He is perfect in heart. And it influences how he reigns. It makes him utterly reliable and trustworthy. Well, how will he rule? That's who he is. So he's perfect in mind. He's perfect in ability and power. He's perfect in heart. Well, how will he now rule? Verse 
3, second half of verse 3, it says, He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he, see, what he hears with his ears. That's not the way things work for us typically today, right? How do we typically judge? We typically judge by what we see and what we hear. But what he's saying here is that eloquent speech, convincing arguments, or even outward appearance has no advantage in his courtroom because he is just. Now we have, uh, my wife and I, we have four kids, and every now and then we might have a little dispute break out, actually more often than every now and then. And, you know, I'll take one of them aside. It's like, okay, what happened? What, you know, what injustice was done to you? And they'll start explaining. It sounds, oh, that's really convincing. I'm hearing what they're saying. They look very convincing. And then I talk to the other one. It's like, oh, well, that's very convincing too. And so I'm judging by, based off what I hear and what I see. And oftentimes, if I'm honest, I'm not really even that concerned about justice. I just want it to stop, right? But that is not what this king does. He is actually concerned about justice, and he isn't swayed by his eyes, what he sees, or what he hears. Well, this passage goes on to describe even further what his rule will look like. Look at some of the language used in, in verse 5. It says, With righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. So some of these words of his rule, he's righteous. The needy, the weak of the earth will not be neglected. They will not be overlooked. Justice will come to them. Those that abuse power, the wicked, those that are just harming other people, they will be brought to justice. It says that they will be destroyed, that he will slay the wicked. It says his very belt is the belt of truth, belt of faithfulness. This is where Paul draws imagery for the armor of God in the last chapter of Ephesians. He's drawing all of this from this these images of this king described in Isaiah. I said it right. So here we are. He, he's got the belt of truth. And he is the only one you can trust with everything, right? He is the ruler that we've all been wanting. He's the ruler we all desire. And here he is. And the truth is, we don't just need this type of ruler to rule our world. We need him to rule our very lives. Who wouldn't want to come under this leadership this perfect leadership that he is giving, that he is offering. So we see that we have hope because of the type of ruler that he is. But we also see, secondly, that our hope, that we can hope in the results of his rule. So what, what are the outcomes of his leadership? We're going to see two different aspects here. We're going to see that one is a perfect kingdom. He's going to usher in a perfect new reality. And then secondly, he's, he's gathering a people to himself. His rule will result in the nations coming to him. And so let's begin with the type of kingdom that he'll be ushering in. Look at verse 6. This is in verses 6 through 9. That his rule results in peace and harmony in all of creation. And what we see here is something utterly new. This is something we do not experience on earth. I'll look at it again. It says, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the young and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, 
the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm him nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I don't know about you, but as you picture this, it's hard for me to even get those pictures in my head. Because it's almost like these opposites are coming together, right? In today's world, what would happen? There would be destruction, there would be devouring, there would be killing and eating, right? I don't know if you're a fan of National Geographic or maybe other nature shows of the like, um, but we have one of our, one of our children is a, a huge fan. And so we're often watching these things, and some of the titles are interesting, you know? It's like when sharks attack or hostile nature or the world's deadliest snakes. And so as we record, you know, from observation, these things aren't happening, right? Well, every Saturday we usually do a pizza movie night, and this child's turn uh, came around to pick the movie, and so we watched The World's Deadliest Snakes. It featured the King Cobra, and this King Cobra can grow, you know, 15 feet long. It has, you know, venomous, uh, it has poison that it can kill its prey within 30 minutes. Over 15,000 people die each year from bites from this snake alone. And here we are, it's, there's a child playing outside of its nest, outside of its den. We would not allow that because it would surely result in death, right? Well, such is the kingdom that the king will bring in, that even nature is at peace. It's a radical image. And it shows the extent and the power of his rule. Look back at verse 9. It says that they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for or because, here's the reason why this won't, that, that death will not happen anymore, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So it's that the, the knowledge of the Lord is present. It's everywhere. Paul in Romans informs us that we have suppressed the knowledge of the Lord because of our sin. We have suppressed it. And he even says that creation groans with a longing for the Redeemer, for redemption. And this king will bring that in. He will bring in that redemption. He will restore all things the way that they should be. Do you long for this type of creation, this type of world? I know I do. I think we would all agree that something has gone drastically wrong with our world today as you observe some of the craziness that goes on around us. Well, the reality is that this, will, this is coming. This is our hope. But we don't have to wait for that to come to have peace today. Look what Jesus promised before he left in John 17, 27. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. He's saying that you can have peace. And he, the context here is he's sending his spirit to be with you. So those who are trusting in Christ now have his spirit and have access to peace in the midst of trying and troubling circumstances. We just memorized a verse as a family, um, Philippians 4, 6 through 7. And it's a very common one, but it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We have this peace available to us when we call out to God that transcends understanding. And as followers of Christ, we have access to this supernatural peace 
when we look to him. Now, the only thing separating us from this new reality, this perfect kingdom that he will usher in, is the command of God. God gives a command, Jesus returns, and he sets up the kingdom. We're inches away from this new reality. But in the meantime, there's still time for people to gather to him, to come to him. Because of his grace, he's wanting to gather the nations to himself. And that's what the next result of his reign is, as we see in verse 10. Look at verse 10. It says, In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. It's interesting. He now is called the root of Jesse. At the beginning, he was, verse 1, he was the shoot of Jesse, right? It's painting the picture of the deity of Jesus. The root, it means the beginning. It's It's the foundation. Jesus was there before the creation of the world. He was there when it was spoken into existence. He wasn't called Jesus because he wasn't born yet, but it was the son was there. And then he comes from Jesse, from the line of David, and he takes on flesh. He becomes fully human. This is the beauty of this king, that he would come to be with us, to die for us on our behalf. The root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people, for the nations to come to. When I was in university, I went to this conference, and it was in a huge stadium, and there were thousands of university students from everywhere, and I remember walking in, being a little overwhelmed, like, where do I go? Where are the people I know? Where do I sit? And then each school that was represented had a flag, a banner, and so as you look down, you find your school emblem, your school flag, and you, you knew where to go. There was a, there was a rally point. Well, the banner that Jesus is waving is his death and resurrection. He died on the cross to pay the punishment for our sin. And then he rose defeating sin and death. And it is the the rally point, the banner, or the signal, another translation says, that we are to come to. Well, this promise is for the nations, but then it's also for Israel here. So God's judgment does come on Israel. The Assyrians started with the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians come in, and they go into exile. Well, God is not finished with them. He will bring them out of exile and back to his, uh, to the promised land. So we see this in verse 11 and 12. It says, in that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people. He will gather the exiles of Israel And the result of his rule is that there will no longer be this conflict among the tribes of Israel. Verse 13, it says, Ephraim will will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile towards Ephraim. And then we see in verse 14 that they're going to be given victory over their enemies as they swoop down the slopes of Philistia. They subdue Edom, Moab, and Ammonites, subject to them. And then we get this familiar language in verses 15 and 16. And it should make our minds go back to the exodus when the nation of israel was held captive by the egyptians they were slaves right and then we have this exodus listen to verse 15 it says the lord will dry up the gulf of the egyptian sea a little further on so that anyone can cross over in sandals and then verse 16 if it's still not clear he says there will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. 
So God is going to bring about a second exodus. He's going to bring not only Israel back from exile, but the nations to himself. This is an amazing picture. So the first exodus was led by Moses. He brought people, his people, the Israelites, out of Egypt from physical slavery. And remember how it happened? One of the plagues, they had to write, they had to put the blood over the door frame, the innocent blood of the lamb, so that the judgment of God would pass over them, and they were spared. And then they come up out of Egypt, and they cross the Red Sea on dry land, and they enter into the promised land. Well, the second exodus is going to be led by this king, by Jesus. He's going to lead us not out of physical slavery, but out of slavery to sin and death. We are slaves to sin and death. That is the reality of every human born into this world. But he's come to set us free. How does he set us free? It's not by the blood of a lamb. It's by the blood of the lamb. It's his blood shed for us. His covering so that God's judgment can pass over us. And he's going to lead us out. And he's going to lead us into the promised land. To this new reality. This new kingdom. This new heaven. And this new earth. And he will bring it about. Well, what is to be the result of all this happening? That's chapter 12. It's to be praise. That's, that, that should be our response when we hear that God is bringing about the second exodus. It would be hope. And the final point is that hope, that it's hope that brings forth praise for what he has done. So if you remember when Moses brought the people across, part of the Red Sea, God part of the Red Sea, they came through and they were on the other side. It closed back over the army of the Egyptians, destroyed them. The very next chapter, chapter 15 in Exodus, is this song, this praise that the people sing, that Moses sings. Well, that's exactly what we get here. Chapter 12, it's a song of praise. It's the response to a perfect ruler ushering in the perfect kingdom gathering a people to himself, and we see praise. So let's briefly look at chapter 12, just the first two verses, really. Verse 1, it says, In that day you will say, I will praise you, Lord. This is to be our response, praise. When we see something that amazing, our response is to praise him, the one who did it. Now, I don't know if you're aware, but the Super Bowl is tonight. Uh, that is an American football uh, and it's the largest like event in the U.S. anyway. It makes it a little hard to watch here because it's 11.30 at night is when it starts, going into the wee hours. But you won't have to watch more than a minute of that game to see people praising. So an amazing play happens on the field, and what's the first response? People jump up out of their seats, arms in the air, cheering, right? They're praising. They, they witness something that elicits a response. Now, as we see in Scripture... This is the ultimate play, right? This is God bringing all things to fulfillment, ushering in the perfect kingdom. What is our response? It's to be praised. It should be the natural response as we worship the one who brings it about. And then we see in verse 2, we, we can have confidence. Listen to this. It says, surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. There's confidence in this salvation that they have. They've, they've just witnessed this, this exodus. Surely this salvation is from the Lord. I will trust him and not be afraid. We can praise him for what he has done. 
So what about you? What are you looking to for hope? Have you looked to this king, this promised Messiah, as your hope? Have you looked forward and remembered that he's making all things new, and one day he will come and set up his reign? That is our hope. Now, I know we all have real things in our lives, real struggles, real conflict. But when we follow this king, he promises that he's making all things new. And that is our hope. Let me pray.